want to start by asking you a question this morning. Um, it's not a very cheery one, I'm afraid, but it's uh, what's the worst problem you could possibly face? What might that be uh, for you? Maybe uh, you're here this morning and you're feeling actually uh, that you're already facing uh, that problem. Uh, often it can be something in our families or something to do with health, perhaps a, a health scare for ourselves or someone that we love. Uh, or often we fear uh, something uh, bad happening to our, our children or our grandchildren. Uh, for others, the, the worst problem that we could possibly face could be financial insecurity, uh, mounting debts with the pressure of uh, feeling that mounting up and no way of paying them off, or the loss of uh, homes, or not having a, a secure place to live. For others here this morning and amongst us, uh, you've experienced uh, that horror of having to leave uh, your country and loved ones because of an invasion. Or looking out across the world, we, we see people facing war and violence all the time, don't we? Uh, and the very real horror of uh, famine. Uh, we could go on all morning, and I'm sorry, it's not a very cheery way uh, to start uh, this sermon. Uh, but I've started here uh, because that's where our passage begins this morning. With what I think is the worst problem anyone could face. A far deeper, a far longer lasting, more unrelenting and more horrific uh, than anything else. The worst problem that any of us could possibly face would be God's anger at our sin. Verse one, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Again. In other words, this is a, a, an ongoing problem between God and his people. Now, there could be many sins that we could point to uh, in Israel um, as to why God's anger is burning against them here. But actually, we're purposely not told uh, what that might be. One of the big things that they've done all the way back in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 was to reject God as their king by asking for a king like the nations. That's a pretty fundamental thing to do, isn't it? But actually, we know that's what all of us have done, really. All of us have uh, rejected God as king uh, and wanting to be in control of our own lives. And so for them and for us, uh, outside of Christ, we are left with a huge problem uh, like this. A just, holy, loving God plus sinful people equals anger, judgment. But we, we need to be clear um, that God's anger is not like ours, thankfully. Uh, like someone put it, uh, God's wrath is not like a kind of shaken can of irritability waiting to explode on otherwise unsuspecting and innocent uh, people. No, God is slow to anger and rich in love. Often, if I'm honest, my own anger arises out of my own selfishness and pride when that's hurt. But God's anger, it comes from his holiness, his love, and his justice. 
Uh, God loves what is good, but that means he also, he hates what is evil. And so as God comes into contact uh, with sin, well, he has to act. We hate it too, don't we, when uh, guilty people uh, get away with it and don't face justice. Well, God would not be uh, loving or just uh, to allow evil to go unpunished. Uh, he cares about sin and evil. His judgment must fall. And yeah, we're going to see today that God's mercy is also very great. He's rich in mercy. So how can God be true both to his, his justice and yet show mercy at the same time? How can those two uh, come together? How can there be a way, can there be a way for this relationship to turn out differently, more like this? That a just, holy, loving God plus sinful people plus something uh, equals peace and mercy. How could that happen? Well, I think uh, throughout the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, we've been uh, there for a few months now. God's been showing that at least three things are needed for, for God to live in peace with his people. Firstly, we've seen, haven't we, that we need a king after God's own heart to rule us righteously in fear of God. We saw a few weeks ago, that's like the, the sun dawning uh, in the morning on us. We've seen glimpses of that with King David. Uh, the blessings of living under a king like this. But secondly, we saw again a few weeks ago that we also need a prophet too. Uh, Mark was preaching on chapter uh, 23, David's last words. And that was talking a lot about the fact that God uh, spoke through David by his spirit. And we've got all the Psalms, haven't we, today that, uh, that God wrote through David. But thirdly, we need a priest. Now, perhaps this has been a bit more subtle as we've gone through uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, but actually, if you remember, that the book begins back in 1 Samuel with uh, God acting in judgment on, a, on an evil priesthood in Eli's sons. They're not acting as they should, not doing the job they should. Morally corrupt. But then actually, as the book progresses throughout David's reign as king, you also see him often acting like a priest, donning the, the priest's ephod um, and welcoming, he was responsible for getting the Ark of God back into Jerusalem, do you remember? And David is the one there offering the sacrifices, acting like a priest. And yet even like we've seen David shine in these roles as prophet, priest and king, by now we're really familiar, aren't we, with David's sin, his weakness and his insufficiency. I think it's no accident, actually, that if you look down at the end of uh, chapter 23, the final name uh, in the list of those 30 fighting men, who is it? It's Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. Whilst David points forward uh, to God's solution in Jesus, sometimes positively, he also shows that he can't be the solution either because He's part of the problem. Uh, David is a sinner. And what's more, he's temporary as well. He, he dies uh, eventually in 1 Kings. And uh, we, we need someone better than that. Uh, we need God's promise to David of a greater son who will rule eternally. As we get to the end of 2 Samuel, uh, that promise uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7 becomes bigger and bigger, really. We know that David is not the one He's always pointing 
beyond himself. We need God's solution, God's provision of this one to rule eternally. So once again, as we come into chapter 24, uh, we see that through his sin, King David is going to lead the nation into calamity. So that's our first heading today. It's up here on the screen. Uh, The problem, the problem, God's righteous anger against his people and king. See, verse one, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. This this sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? God's, God's already angry with Israel, with the people, but then he incites David to kind of sin, kind of as a mechanism through which he'll then judge uh, the whole nation. Uh, The king's sin leads the whole nation into judgment. And again, we're not told the details of why it's sinful for David to take a census. It's not actually forbidden. Um, But we do know that David was conscience stricken afterwards, wasn't he, and repented. But that phrase, uh, God incited David against them, it does sound uh, strange to us, doesn't it? And actually, the the parallel passage um, in 1 Chronicles 21 puts it differently. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. So what's going on? (laughs) Was it God or was it Satan? Well, we know, don't we, that from the rest of the Bible, that God is not the author of evil. There's no darkness or shadow uh, in God at all. But we also know from the rest of the Bible that that God is completely in control of everything, even evil, even sin, even Satan. And thank God he is, actually. And so the biblical authors, you know, whether it's the writer of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel or um, in 1 Chronicles, they see no difference, really. They're they're happy to say, yeah, God incited him, Satan incited him, because ultimately they know that God is in control of everything anyway. And, And God even uses sin and Satan to achieve his good purposes. That's exactly what we see happening at the cross of Jesus, isn't it? God uses the the very sinful, unjust actions of men, crucifying on a cross, but he's using it to achieve his good plan, his plan of rescuing us uh, from sin and judgment. There's not time to go into that more this morning, so I don't think that's really supposed to be the main thing of this passage, but I've recommended this book once before, but if you want to think about it again, I really would recommend it. It's called Where Was God When That Happened? Um, I think there's only two copies at the table in the back, actually, uh, but we can order more if you want. Um, You can have a special Advent Sunday deal today of two pounds if you want to take that away. Um, But it is really good on um, God's goodness and his control of evil and suffering and why that's such a good thing that God really is in control of everything. This world is not in chaos and outside of his control. But the point is that uh, God's anger is against the people, but he uses the king's sin as the thing that will kind of trigger his judgment to fall. And you do see that so often uh, in the Bible, especially from here on in, and in in 1 and 2 Kings as well. So where the king goes, the people go. So a a good king will lead the people into, uh, in God's word and in blessing, but a bad king 
will lead the whole nation into sin and judgment. Well, in verse 3, back in our passage, our old mate Joab, he pops up again, doesn't he? We haven't seen him for a while. Uh, and unusually for him, do you remember Joab the fixer? He, he actually seems to speak some sense for once because he's counselling David, saying, no, don't go and uh, take this census. But actually, uh, David word, David's word prevails. And so that extensive counting of all the fighting men takes place uh, from Dan to Bathsheba. So all the uh, land of the tribes of Israel is included. They start, start out on this really sort of big circuit, ending up back in Jerusalem after a whole nine months. That's a long trek, isn't it? Imagine if you lost count halfway through. Um, but David's, um, David's reaction to this, we don't know what his motives were. Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was a lack of trust in God's provision for him. But it, it, it isn't kind of pleasure in this show of military strength and these big numbers. Actually, his heart strikes him. His heart strikes him and he repents. That moves us to the next kind of scene of this uh, account. So the next scene is that the king leans on God's mercy, yet judgment must still fall. The king leans on God's mercy, yet judgment must still fall. It's, it's worth just pausing on these verses. This is verses 10 to 17, just to have a look at David's repentance, because it is so sincere, isn't it? It's a model uh, for us to follow. Verse 10, David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Sin is always foolish, isn't it? To, to go against God's way of love, uh, honouring him and the best way that he's given us to live. And this is, this is true repentance, isn't it? I don't know about you, uh, but it's, it's so easy when saying sorry to someone uh, to add the word, but. Uh, sorry, but. Uh, oh, sorry, I shouted at you, uh, but, I, but I was just tired. Kids were stressing me out. I've never said that. Um, that's, that's sorry with excuses, isn't it? Sorry with excuses. And even, even when we come to, to the Lord and we're repenting and saying sorry to him, uh, the God who knows everything is still tempting, I think, even in your prayer to kind of dress up uh, what we've done, to sugarcoat it, to not quite uh, recognise our true uh, sinful motives and actions. But there's none of that with David. He just comes out with it. I've sinned greatly. I've done an exceedingly foolish thing. And yet he still has the confidence to ask God to take his sin and guilt away. See, we know, don't we, David's had this amazing experience of God's mercy already with his greatest sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. David did suffer awful consequences, we know that. But also God has said to him, I've taken away your guilt. You will not die. But this time, it is more complicated. Remember, it isn't just David's sin in taking the census, but God's anger is burning against the whole of the nation of Israel, his people. And so 
judgment must still fall. And quite strangely, I don't know of many places where this happens, uh, but David is given a choice here, isn't he? Uh, options, three options of the way that God will punish them. Verse 13, he's given these three choices. So you get three years of famine or three months of fleeing from your enemies uh, or three days of plague in your lands. And David, he's, he's out of his depth, isn't he? He's in real distress. He can't actually do anything to stop this um, himself. And yet, David knows his God. He instinctively chooses the option that he thinks will uh, leave him in the hands of God's mercy. God's merciful hands. Verse 14, he says, Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Even in the midst of this judgment falling, David knows his God. Yes, he is a God of justice, but also a God of great mercy. David wrote, one of the Psalms he wrote was Psalm 103. One of the verses says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yet, justice must be done. Judgment falls and the plague spreads. It matches the, the area of the census. Note from Dan to Bathsheba. Uh, all the land where they were counted uh, is, is the same area and people that are affected by this plague. 70,000 in all. Horrific judgment. And yet, God's judgment still falls with mercy too. Verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. See, David's instinct to lean on God's mercy, it was the right one. God relents and stops the disaster from spreading any further. It's a hard to unpick like which order these verses go in in terms of time. But I think there is a, a hint here that God actually stops the plague earlier than the three days. Or at least prevents the plague from spreading to its full uh, extent. Stopping short of Jerusalem itself. God is just. His anger rightly burns against sin and evil, ours included. And yet he is also merciful. I wonder if that's something you're convinced of um, about God this morning, that his mercy really is great. As you sin, as I sin and fall short, we should, we should rightly face his anger and judgment. But are you comforted by his mercy? We began the service, didn't we, crying out to God, calling out to God, using another of King David's Psalms. Hear, Lord and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. But have we then experienced the rest of that psalm that we finished with, him turning our, our weeping and wailing into rejoicing and dancing? Uh, is your Christian walk, your life with God, is it marked by an enjoyment of God's mercy? Well, if not, I, I pray that what we hear next towards the end of this sermon will, will help us rejoice even dance. You're allowed to dance, even though the most of us are English. 
it's allowed here. Because uh, so often, uh, as before in this book, we see David, he starts acting like a priest again in these last few verses. So verse 17, um, you see David, he, he's interceding, he's praying on behalf of the people. He, he's saying, Lord, please let the judgment fall on me and my family and, and not on them. So verse 17, when David saw uh, the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, uh, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Uh, David's motives for praying this are really good, aren't they? He's calling out, uh, on behalf of the people for God's mercy. And yet he's also mistaken because he's, he's seemingly ignorant about the state, the condition, the true condition of the sheep. It's not just him who's sinned, but them too. And God's righteous anger is burning against them. And yet as imperfect uh, as David's prayer is in that he lacks that knowledge, uh, God still responds mercifully to him by directing King David to what is truly needed. That's our final heading this morning, the solution. God directs King David. Only sacrifice will suffice. Only sacrifice will suffice. Verse 18, immediately after David's prayed, on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord commanded through Gad. Here's David, the, the priest again, uh, listening to God and building an altar to offer sacrifice. And the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite is, is just the point where God had stopped, had halted the plague. And so this is the place where he directs David to build an altar the sacrifice. Uh, this is the place where God's justice and God's mercy are to meet. Uh, only a sacrifice is going to ensure that the plague is stopped uh, permanently. And we know as well from 1 Chronicles that uh, David also decides that this exact same place should be where they then build the temple in the future. So that means that this place uh, will continue to be the place for years and years to come where sacrifice is repeatedly offered year after year in order for God to satisfy his holy anger at his people's sins so that he can dwell with his people. But in these last few verses, you see that sacrifice, it, it always costs. It's not for free. And so as you see, Aruna, it, with good motives, he wants to give what is needed for the sacrifice uh, for free. But David insists on paying. He says this in verse 24. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. A sacrifice for sin always costs. David knew this principle. He tried to step in and avert God's anger himself, but only God could provide the solution. Only a sacrifice that God directed, that God even provides, uh, will enable his justice to be done, but also him to show mercy at the same time to his people. And so we breathe a sigh of relief, don't we, 
at the end of this book as the priest king David offers a sacrifice and the book of Samuel ends with these words. Verse 25, then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague was stopped. Phew. Except this wasn't the end of the story. So as you go on into the next books of the Bible, uh, one and two kings, in the temple that was to be built on that same site, repeated sacrifices would need to be offered continually for the continued sin of the people. Uh, God's anger was averted here, it, the plague was stopped, but the problem of sin and of God's anger was not yet resolved. Something more was needed, something more that God had always planned and promised. God's promise to David of a son that would sit on the throne eternally showed that a greater king than King David was needed, but also a, a greater priest too. And in the story of the Bible, despite a huge high point under David's son Solomon, this equation uh, would still stand. A just, holy, loving God plus sinful people does result rightly in God's holy, righteous anger. God was incredibly patient with his people for hundreds of years uh, and yet eventually as we read on in 1 and 2 Kings the kingdom splits and the whole nation is taken into exile because of their sin because God's judgment must fall. And all the way through the Old Testament God has been showing uh, the need not just for a king but for a priest with a better sacrifice. And thankfully, praise God, he, he arrived, didn't he? He arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the great high priest who would offer the most costly sacrifice ever seen, his very own self. Hebrews 7 puts it like this. Now there have been many of those priests, those Old Testament priests, uh, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Here's our priest, King Jesus, David's greater son with the permanent priesthood, which means he always lives to intercede for us. And how does he save completely? What is the sacrifice that he offers? Well, unlike the Old Testament priests at the temple who had to repeatedly offer sacrifices both for themselves and for the people, Hebrews 10 says this, but he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. If you're a Christian here this morning, trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for you, then we need a new equation, no longer this one, but this. A holy, loving God plus sinful people plus Jesus' sacrifice equals peace. If you're trusting in Jesus, then the biggest problem that you could have ever faced has already been fully and finally dealt with by Jesus on the cross. 
God's justice has been maintained. He hates sin. He hates evil. His justice must fall. But Jesus willingly offered himself as that perfect one-time sacrifice for Jesus, sacrifice for sin. God's judgment did fall, but it fell on Jesus at the cross, where God's justice and his mercy meet. Justice as Jesus pays that price for sin, but opens the way for mercy to anyone, anyone who comes to God to say sorry, who comes to him to call out to him for mercy. Uh, if, if you're someone here this morning who hasn't yet called out to God for mercy, then I'd urge you to do that. Come to Jesus and have your biggest problem dealt with. I'll end with Psalm 30. If you'd like to join in actually with this, you can. We said it once this morning. Let's say it again together. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Amen.